Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Today, we welcome David Hobson to Centre Stage. David Hobson is one of Australia's best-known operatic concert and stage performers, with a repertoire that spans the gamut of musical styles from Baroque through to pop. Beginning his career in rock and jazz bands, David's potential as a classical singer was discovered by the Victorian State Opera in the 1980s. He subsequently made his name with Opera Australia in his award-winning performance as Rodolfo in La Boheme, directed by Baz Luhrmann. Since then, he has gone on to become a well-regarded classical performer, major recording artist, and most recently, a music theatre leading man. Whether he is centre stage at the Sydney Opera House, carolling on Christmas Eve through his anticipated appearances at Carols by Candlelight, or singing the national anthem at the AFL Grand Final. David Hobson guarantees a vocal performance and a charm that excites, inspires and endears him to a legion of fans. David is also a footy fanatic. And when we recorded, the AFL Grand Final was only days away. And presenting the potential for his beloved Melbourne Demons to claim the Premiership Cup after a long wait of 57 years. David is a great raconteur, informed by vast experience and passion for his art. Here's part one of Stage's conversation with David Hobson. And as the sky moved by and life was rearranged, this room has never changed. The hours spent with you To know 
So Peter, what's yes, the, so what's, your, what, what's kind of the vibe? Because I've listened to a couple of things. I mean, first and foremostly, brilliant job. I oh, think what you. you're doing. No, amazing. Like it's um, like you're archiving Australian arts or theatre. It's fantastic. But anyway, I just wanted to say from the outset, brilliant work. Absolutely brilliant work. Oh, are you frozen? No, 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 I'm just... Oh, you're just, you're just listening intently. You just I, give me I'm more. Just, give I'm me just more. letting no, it lap the, over love, me. No, I just love the way you're letting you let the um, your guests talk and then you just guide them with these fantastic questions here and there. It's really informative. It's really, it's lovely. It's a lovely way to to do it. And I think you've done a brilliant job. It's as, it's you. as if you were born to do it. Oh, thank you, David. In I a way. Oh, well, let's hope this one doesn't shit itself. No, it's really because it, it just it feels like you can be a lovey if you want to be a lovey and you can be a, you know what I mean by that? Yes, you can yes, do absolutely. A lovey thing and then you can be very serious and then you can be very empathetic, sympathetic, and you guide your guests beautifully because it's not a, not everyone can do it. Uh, who's going to win the grand final? <sighs> now, think carefully. <laughs> Well, I don't know if you're aware of it, but I'm a a staunch Melbourne supporter. I'm very well aware of it. Um, I'm really, it, it's funny, I've entered into a, I think I'm being like the players. I think, Peter, I've received more messages about Melbourne getting into the finals and the grand final than I have for any performance I've done. You know, there seems to be more people aware of my insane love and um, respect and it, it's almost like a a barometer of how I feel how the how my team goes to a degree so I for the last 57 years I've led a pretty miserable life I guess but I think that it's a 50-50 game I was more convinced we could beat Port Adelaide but I think the doggies are a, a fantastically coached unit and their their midfield bats very deeply and because uh, you you, you you like footy, don't you? You're a bit of a yeah, yeah, man. absolutely. Yeah. I wish we weren't doing this before the grand final because I we could talk about it after and then we'd really know what was going on. But I think that their midfield is incredibly good. They use the ball so well. They use the ball so well. But on the other hand, we have a really strong midfield as well. And of course, it all starts in the middle. But we rely on exploding out of the stoppages. Whereas I think the doggies. When they're in tight and they're in the stoppages, they can get out the back with hands really quickly and the way they use the ball is probably more precision-like than our team. That's the only thing that worries me and they can they can really hurt us that way. But if we can, with the likes of Oliver and Petrarca, if they can get on top, I know it sounds cliché, but if they can get on top of the midfield, we can explode. they've learned how to explode not only in a in straight lines, but also laterally laterally as well. And they can give our forward line, which isn't incredibly strong. Our forward line is not incredibly strong. But if we give them a chance and we cause a bit of chaos in the forward line, I think we're a really good chance, really good chance. 
But it's a, I, I think it's 50-50 game. I think it's a great grand final. Probably, hopefully, one of the best we've had in years because I think it's more even than it has been. Um, you must be very nervous. Uh, it's been a 26-year drought, I believe, since Melbourne were in the finals. Yeah, I think it was, well, no, it was the year 2000. So it's 21 years since we were in a grand final. And I think, as I said before, Essendon were clearly one of the best teams of the last 50 years. And we were an, a young and incredibly well-coached side by Neil Danaher, who kind of created a us and them mentality. And we were definitely the underdogs. It was David versus Goliath. And I don't know if you're aware of Neil Danaher and what a, he's a fantastic man, now does the whole MND drive and he has MND. Uh, anyway, we were up, really up against it and we lost by 10 goals. And the other grand final we're in, which was in 1988, we played against Hawthorne, who are again a super side and absolutely, you know, we're talking Dermot Brereton, Jason Dunstall, all of those guys. Um, and again, we were not a strong side, but we were a really willing side. We had a lot of heart and we were coached by that great Ballarat stalwart footballer, John Northing, who, yep. of course, is uncle of Ben, the conductor, who just lived across the road from me in Ballarat. So John was a fantastic motivator as well and also kind of created a great team mentality. But we were up against this Roman legion. And I remember... Uh, I couldn't get a ticket to the grand final. I, I, mean, this is, I don't know if this is an interesting story or not, but in 1987 <laughs> I got my MCC, MCC membership, right. which is a much a much coveted membership and probably my most treasured club that I'm a member of. So I received my restricted membership, but it doesn't get you a grand final ticket. Oh, right. And uh, it gets you to every, to every final except the grand final. And even if you're a Melbourne football club member, you still have to pay a certain amount to get the ticket. But I remember when I got my MCC membership and Melbourne were in the finals for the first time since 1964 and it was Robbie Flower's last year. Now, Robbie Flower was like, how would I describe him? Well, for me, he was Mozart, he was Nureyev, he was Bernstein, he was, you know, my my raison d'etre. He was... Top I just of his adored, game. Top of his game, but also my most adored person ever. Anyway, it was his last year and he got into the finals. And I remember hearing my then girlfriend, Lindy Hume. Do you know Lindy? I don't think you know Lindy. Director. Absolutely. Director Lindy. And I remember overhearing Lindy in a conversation with Kate Sadler, who was actually um, Brian Stacey's girlfriend, saying to Kate, she said, "Uh, Kate, I don't think I can make David any happier than he is today. Melbourne are in the finals and he's just received his MCC membership. (laughs) I guess that's what football means to me in a way. But anyway, in 1988, probably boring you talking about football, but this is a personal chat. Um, I remember we would have been in about the opening of the third quarter. It was a shocking rainy day. And the ball from the halfback line was like it was entrenched in a Roman phalanx. And that was the Hawthorne colours of yellow and brown. And it just moved like this <laughs> Roman legion scattering red and blue everywhere on its way to the goal. It didn't I don't think it, the ball got off the ground. Yeah. And there was just <laughs> Melbourne casualties as they kind of ploughed their way through the MCG 
and ended up kicking this goal and by then was all over anyway. They they were just so strong and one of the best teams of the last century as well. So Melbourne's been up against it every time we got into the finals. No, no. I do do have an unhealthy love of football. You must have been, all your Christmases had come at once when you got to sing at the grand final, the the national anthem. Yeah, I, I look. If I wasn't going to play on the wing for Melbourne in the grand final, yeah, singing it, singing it, in it was the next best thing, I guess. Because I, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand why I have this unhealthy obsession, but it, I'm obsessed by it. And we still, as a group of us, that still play. So I still play a, a brand of AFL nines every now and then. We have nine aside, and there's also a group of us that have been kicking the footy since the mid-90s, um, which is mainly comedians and musicians. And we're guys who, you know, could have, should have been. And we still kick the footy every Wednesday and Sunday. So we've got guys in their 60s and from their 30s to the 60s. So it's an obsession I just cannot get rid of. So so, so why Melbourne? Was that the, the family team? Uh... Uh, it was my dad's team. I mean, I have family connections to both Hawthorne and St Kilda because my grandfather played for Hawthorne when they first entered the league. And I have a favourite uncle, a great uncle, who was a St Kilda stalwart. He played for St Kilda in the 30s. And he played for Victoria as well. He's a very good footballer, Lloyd-Jones. He was also the headmaster of Ballarat High School and he was a... Great sprinter and a very good musician as well. And he was Dad's favourite uncle, so I just I still can't quite work out how Melbourne came into the to being. But once, you know, I donned the red and blue, it's just stuck thick. And my uncle, Les, he was a bit, yeah, so it was a familial thing, but our, as you can see, when I look back through the antecedents, you know, with my grandfather, Hawthorne, and Lloyd, um, St Kilda, hmm. You played as a as a kid, obviously, in Ballarat. Yep, played in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> Who did you play for? Was it, was it school teams or? Ballarat? I played. Yeah, I played for. Yeah, my my school team played for Ballarat as well, the Ballarat Swans. Um, but I just remember, I don't know why, it's just I had this image of playing St Pat's, and it's snowing. I remember playing against Dalesford, snowing. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why that's coming to my brain. But, yeah, love love footy uh, as a kid and played a lot of it and would always – I remember I, my sister had a, a designer artist who made me a Melbourne flag and we made a flagpole and every Saturday afternoon I'd raise the, the red <laughs> and blue flag and play the, play the game out in my backyard with the radio on and we won most games I was – in those days. Good to hear. Good to hear. Was mm. Ballarat a good place to grow up? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, you, like you, you were from Meribah, am I right? Meribah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm yeah. A bit, yeah, but Ballarat boy, ostensibly in a way. Do, do you think of yourself as? Well, my, my, my dad was born there, so I sort of claim that right to, to Ballarat. Um, and I had uh, 10 years in Ballarat. Uh, I was at uni. And then mm-hmm. uh, I taught at uh, Ballarat and Clarendon for five years yep. and indeed had uh, worked a couple of times with your dad, the great oh, really? Phil Hobson. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was okay. a funny man, a funny, funny man. Yeah. 
Uh, he was he was a good man. He was a very good man, and uh, went too early. Went far too early. He was very sick for the last I don't know ten years of his life. Really, it was um, yeah. It was hard. It was hard, Yaka. Those uh, those last few years, he'd always crack hardy, but gee, it was tough because he went from being incredibly fit, vibrant, vital person to you know pretty poorly, pretty sick. Always had the oxygen by his side. An emphysema, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like a the emphysema thing. I mean, at that age, you know, mid fifties, and also he had a thing called hemochromatosis, which was an iron disorder in the blood as well, which got exacerbated by every other problem he had. So he gets fluid in the lungs, and yeah, it wasn't wasn't great. But anyway, that was that was that. He was he was a good man. Yeah, and what about your own? Um, uh, <clears throat> entries onto the stage in Ballarat because uh, you were an artful dodger, weren't you, to your father's Fagan in Oliver? That's right. Uh, my first, actually, my very first, that was my first thing on stage, but I remember I did something with Dad a couple of years before that. He used to, because he was, my dad was a local singer, did a lot of singing around the traps and he was doing a carols by, I don't know whether it was called carols by candlelight, but we used to have a, a sound shell in Ballarat Botanical Gardens, and they, 3BA, the local radio station, used to broadcast carols on a, I guess it was Christmas Eve, I can't quite remember. But that was my first thing I did with Dad, where I did Good King Wenceslas with him. I think I was the page. I was eight or nine. And then after that, yeah, he was Fagan and I was the Artful Dodger. So that's a, that's a nice kind of connection to have with your father. Absolutely. I do. And that was um, Stuart Maiden. And Stuart was a, he was a great guy, Stuart. He was, because I, I must confess, at school, I was probably more, once I'd done a little bit of theatre when I was, you know, like Artful Dodger when I was 12, and I think I did Sound of Music. Not I think, I know I did for the local, I think it was called Ballarat Lyric Theatre. But once the hormones kicked in, I lost interest in, you know, I found it a bit daggy. So all of a sudden I was more interested in Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And I kind of lost interest in that side of the stage for a while. So it was sport and more rock and pop. But Stuart Maiden uh, convinced me or coerced me into doing this great production of I Would A Lovely War, which is a great piece. And he was a... He was a terrific guy, a terrific director as well. Then you've got Simon now, who's a fantastic performer. His yeah. son, Simon Maid. Just having a complete season of uh, Come From Away. Yeah, which 
I couldn't get to see because they'd shut it down, so I haven't got a chance to see that yet. Although we did, it was great because I Simon's a bit younger than me again, and I think we're going. We're going to catch up. I think we're, Carol's by Candlelight, the company of come from away were there, so it was, that was lovely to catch up with him. And his sister Amy is also in the biz. There's because been I a- must admit, I'd lost I'd lost the interest in drama at school, and he got me interested again. And, of course, your, your interest in rock and uh, that genre of music, I suppose, is what lured you towards Jesus Christ Superstar when you did that. Yeah, I did a... God, are people going to be interested in this? This is all this kind of... <laughs> of course they are. Um, yes, I did. They, the, it was called the Ballarat Begonia Festival. Well, yes, the Ballarat Begonia Festival. They did a music... started to do musical, big musicals. And I was asked to go back and do Judas in Superstar, which is terrific. It was great fun. It was great to be able to go and do, get a chance to do something like that. I still wasn't, I still wasn't interested in being a performer at that stage, to tell you the truth. I was more interested in playing in bands and writing music. So it was, but it was a good chance to kind of get your vocal chops around something that was fantastic and iconic. And because Superstar is a seminal piece of work on so many levels. It's incredible when you think about it. It just had such a visceral impact on me. It's just so vibrant and exciting and interesting and also kind of uplifting and spiritual in a way. And it had great players in the band as well. So the, the makeup of the rock section was guys like Don Kirby, who was a great drummer, and Graham Hodge, who was playing the bass and ran the local recording studio, and John Dukakis on guitar, um, and then all the other regular great musicians that Ballarat had but it had a great rhythm section as well, which is what you required. You ever dance with a star? It doesn't get you very far. Dance me to your beauty with a burning violin. Dance me through the panic till I'm gathered safely in. Lift me like an olive branch and be my homeward dove. Dance me to the end of love. Dance me to the end of love. Oh, let me see. David, why do, why do you think um, Ballarat has been such a, a terrific incubator for talent? Because a lot of artists have, have come out of the town. I, I, well, I think there's a myriad of answers, really. Grew up on gold, obviously, so there was always money around, I guess, to support the arts to a degree. People would have wanted to spend their money on entertainment, so they would have had to have had theatres. They would have had to have had good performers. There were certain ethnic groups that always wanted a certain type of entertainment. Oh, gee, it's really hard to say. I, I, I guess the first thing would have been the goldfields, would have surely had an impact on Lola Montez. I'm, oh, where am I going back? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? The, there was a great choral tradition in Ballarat as well. I mean, I have my father's mother's side goes back to Ballarat quite deep. There was a very clanny Welsh side. So there was a lot of Welsh people there, I think, who used to sing, and there was choirs for days. Boy, what else can you say about that? Music just, music just seemed to be a very important part of the city to begin with. I think 
the Royal South Street competition, of course. Uh, Which, well, of course, because that, well, that was born out of the fact that there was money, so they had a prize. So people would naturally gravitate to Ballarat to perform. So I guess that gave it a certain cred where people would want to come there to perform. And, of course, the Herald Sun Aria was born out of that, which became a very important classical award for budding opera singers or classical singers. So I think there's, there was just a hot pot of, of culture. And as you can see, the architecture also is a reflection of that. Then the theatre, I think the churches, the cathedral. I think there was just a, and it was close enough to Melbourne for people to be inspired as well. So by the time I was young, there was, you know, a couple of musical theatre companies. There was Ballarat National Theatre. I think there was a couple of other acting theatres as well. Eleanor Morecambe used to have her Sunday very important classical recitals, which many people from Melbourne used to come up to as well. I mean, it was it became a little bit of an epicentre for performance. There were great teachers. Um, you know, you had the local television radio I mean by the time I'd left because I left Ballarat I just I was 16 when I left Ballarat but I think I'd already been on telly I'd been on stage I'd been on the radio I'd had a wealth of opportunity and also there's a real history of benevolence in Ballarat there's a real mentorial side which I'm really proud of as well you always feel as though Ballarat really want to help and um, foster and nurture their young talent in fact I'm part of a thing called the Ballarat Arts Foundation which started about 20 years ago and it was just started out of really wonderful like-minded elders of the community that wanted to ensure that younger performers got their chance to pursue their dreams whether it be you know buying a a trumpet here's $150 to put towards your art or here's you know that, that that's the type I love the fact that it was didn't matter how little the the um, incentive was the idea was let's help foster the youth, let's make them feel, let's help them fly the nest as well. It wasn't about keeping them here. It was about let's really help these kids to, to pursue and fulfil their dreams. And I think that's, I think that's always been in Ballarat. Um, yeah. And I felt, that, I felt that from day one. You know, I'm lucky enough to have been surrounded by that kind of energy. So I think that's, that's been very much a big part of why it's, it's been so successful in in um, helping young artists. I mean, and you know, from my generation, there was a fantastic array of. I mean, we had David and Roger Lemke, who of course became good opera singers. David Hirschfelder, my good friend, who's we've collaborated on. I mean, we started playing in bands together, and he's like an Oscar-nominated composer. James Valentine. These are these, and these are just my close friends, and they were all lucky enough to, you know, have had a. A training and a background in a in a community like that was always a great place to to be a young performer or a young artist to a degree. I mean, you did have to leave, but I remember the generation following on from people like me. They got an even better start with people like Graham Vandy, for instance, who created a fantastic kind of musical environment, not only just at Ballarat College, but in the wider Ballarat community, and producing, you know alumni such as, uh, you know, people like Ben Northey and, you know, yep. young performers like Simon Maiden as well who I was Jackie alluding Dark. to before. Jackie Dark. Jackie Dark, ridiculous, you know. Natalie Jones. Style. Natalie and Mark Jones. You yep. know, Mark, not only Natalie who had that 
super stratospheric voice, great actor, Jackie, the same thing. And I think the thing also with that generation is that they, I think they were even more well-rounded than us to a degree because they had more of a classical grounding as well as the music theatre. I mean, Jackie can swing either way as well. She can do music theatre and she got such a fantastic set of pipes. But also I think there's a, a nice kind of sense, how can I put this? They, they, they always seem to be quite grounded, a lot of those performers from Ballard in a funny way. Well, maybe that's me being a little bit biased, but, you know, someone like you mentioning, you know, like Natalie and Jackie and Simon and all those guys, they seem to have a great respect for the industry as a whole and for other performers. And I'm wondering whether they got that grounding in that environment as well, because, I mean, one of the most important things about being a performer is your relationship with other performers, I think. Mm. And mm. I hope that shows for the audience as well as us on stage. But I find that one of the most vital ingredients to being a, a good performer is your kind of connection with your fellow performer and also anyone else in the, who happens to be part of the production. Generations before you, classical singers like Elsie Morrison and, and Marie Collier. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, Ballarat has a ridiculous amount of, I mean, Elsie Morrison. I remember hearing, because one of my treasured uh, recordings when I grew up was a Messiah, which had Elsie Morrison on it. It was pretty slow now when I think about it. Who was, I think it was a Thomas Beecham, Beecham recording the Messiah. And I didn't realise she was a Ballarat person yeah. until, because I, I remember listening to it when I was a five or six-year-old. I just loved that music. And I used to get cotton wool and put it on my hair and pretend I was handled conducting. <laughs> so the voice of Elsie Morrison and all those great Australian, uh, sorry, Ballarat singers, yeah, definitely. Well, even, you know, Bob Lemke, who, fantastic voice. All, yeah, I mean, a lot of great singers have come from Ballarat and performers. What was it about Macbeth that drew to you to uh, compose a score? Oh, yeah. Um, hubris, stupidity. It's a pretty dark story. <laughs> it is. Uh, I studied it at school in Form 4 or Year 10 or whatever. Uh, I, I was just attracted to the drama. I don't know because there's nothing romantic about it in a way. I mean, it's, it's so dramatic, but it's such an action-packed story, magical element about it. It's because he's not, I mean, he's an anti-hero, isn't he? I don't know, it just, it, it just felt operatic and not that I was intending on writing an opera of such, I was just drawn to the story. It was either going to be that or Far From the Batting Crowd, oh, wow. which I did in Year 11. Yeah. So I had, two, I had two stories that were kind of informing me either side that I wanted to do something. You obviously thought they could both sing, are those stories? Yeah. I mean, I, was, I, I loved the Hardy novel so much. I don't know why, because it's for, a, you know, a 15-year-old, when you think about it, it's pretty dense. Bathsheba Everdeen. Bathsheba Everdeen, correct. And the fact that you had this fantastic one protagonist in Bathsheba and the three men, you know, Gabriel Oak and Sergeant Troy, and... When I saw the movie a couple of years later, well, that was it. I was gone. Julie, Julie Christie. Christie. Oh, give me a break. Extraordinary. <laughs> so it was either one of those two because um, I wrote little vignettes around both of them. I wrote a little 
four-part, little four-part kind of musical piece on on uh, Bathsheba, and then I started writing little scenes for Macbeth. And I, at the time, I, I wasn't really thinking of them going anywhere. You, it's, I just used to write little bits of music for myself. It wasn't about I needed to be a great composer or musician or anything. I just loved the idea of eking out music and creating it. Were you aware of a fellow called Giuseppe Verdi? No, and I only became aware of him. <laughs> no, this is quite true. I wasn't because although we're, we're a musical household, we weren't an operatic household. We, my dad was very much into musical theatre and my mum was very much into classical music. So we always, so we would have a, a good kind of um, diet of musical theatre and mum was very much classical music. We'd listen to 3AR on the way to school and she would give me recordings on the great lives of composers, you know, there were these fantastic listening for pleasure records which would have the lives of composers, which I loved listening to, William Tchaikovsky and Mozart and Beethoven. So that's how I um, discovered all that type of music through my mum probably more than my dad because my dad, although he had a classically bent voice and a, a, a really lovely, you know, light lyric baritone voice which had a classical sound to it, he, he yeah, we never went the opera it wasn't opera wasn't really part of our thing it's a bit of gns here and there but it was more musical theater you know rogers and hammerstein the like so it wasn't until i came to melbourne that i heard that someone else had written a a macbeth and i was quite i was going oh gee really so <laughs> and they happened to be doing a version of it at the princess theater the australian opera were there and it was rita hunter playing lady macbeth and a guy called great american baritone called Cheryl Milnes was uh, Macbeth and Donald Shanks played Banquo. And I couldn't believe how, particularly because Donald was uh, Australian, could not believe his voice when I first heard it. Yeah. Absolutely magnificent, beautiful performance. So I went along and I went, oh, okay, so that's Macbeth. Um, I reckon my witch is a better than them. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I was blown away. I was blown away, but I kept on trudging through. Uh, but I and it was interesting though. I was really so taken by Don Shanks, and it was wonderful when I got to work with him many years later. So that was a that was a great thrill in many respects. But it was your Macbeth that was your gateway into the industry, wasn't it? You you sent it a, a recording to Victoria State Opera. <clears throat> yeah, what I did was I. I started writing and I, was, I started writing my own lyrics. And so, first of all, I, I tried to set it to Shakespeare's text and that wasn't working because I wasn't composing very well in iambic back then. <laughs> and uh, I tried a few lyricists and then, not that I happenstance, but I started working with a guy called Graham Hodge in Ballarat who was a local musician and he ran a local recording studio and he was a generation above me, but I went there to do a recording of my own songs. This wasn't Macbeth back then. And Graham liked my songs, which I was demoing up just because I needed to get them done. So it was David Hirschfelder and myself, Tony Hayes on drums and the Sargent brothers and the Sargent family were also a, a very well-to-do musical family. Musical family. 
Peter yeah. Sargent. Yeah. Peter Sargent, who is Peter and Marge, who ran St. Cecilia Saint Singers. St. Cecilia Singers. Yeah. Singers. And they had six children and Angela and Michael and Paul, uh, Helen and Julie, Fiona. They're all fantastic musicians. Most of them are in the, in the MSO or playing for the Adelaide Simple. And Michael and Paul both played pop music, so they played with me. So Michael played the flute and the sax and Paul was on guitar. Anyway, we went in and, and with David Hirschfeller, we went and recorded some of my songs. And that's where I met Graham Hodge. And I ended up playing in a band with him called The Parrots, uh, which had Don Kirby and John Don DeCarthus and um, Paul Simmons on sax. And I said to Graham, look, you know, I'm, I've been going through a few lyricists. Do you want to have a crack at a couple of these songs? Because he was writing music as well. So he ended up writing the lyrics for me. Anyway, that's a long story into telling you that I recorded with Graham all of these. It was two hours of sung through the story of Macbeth. And when we finished it, I started to hock it around some production people and I got to the art centre and George Fairfax and Sue Natras. George was the general manager and Sue was head of everything else. She was... People would know who George Fairfax was and Sue Natras, who used to basically run J.C. Williamson's. She was a stage, she started as a stage manager, but she became a very important person in Australian theatre. They liked what they heard and they said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to do a Bacchus audition. We want you to sing a few scenes on the stage of the then just opened Art Centre. So this is 1984, 83, 84, I can't remember. So I went on there and did a, sang a couple of scenes, played the piano and sang a couple of scenes and one of the prospective uh, producers with the Victorian, Victoria State Opera and Ken Mackenzie Forbes said, we're going to put some money into your show and I want you to come and sing. I said, no, I'm not interested. He <laughs> rang me again. <laughs> Sounded a bit daggy to me and he said, no, 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 we're doing the Pirates of Penzance. So this is how I got from Macbeth into being a singer. But anyway, you said that, that's what happened. Basically, so we got some money together to do a to get it to the next stage. Wow. 
all your life, Macbeth. But it's lonely coming down. Always someone with a knife. But you know I'll be around. Not a lover or a wife, but a brother. What a waste of our yesterdays. There's nothing tomorrow. Just a taste, then it's swept away. It's a crazy dream. This is life. It's a fake. It's not fair. It's a crazy scheme. Blowing in the air. It's not what. Have I answered the question or not? You have it. You're, you're doing a wonderful job answering the questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So the, the Art Centre and, and Victoria, I don't know who else were putting money into it, and they put me on a bit of a retainer to be a composer, and they said, we're going to do a workshop of it, we're going to get it up, and we're going to put it on. So we ended up, first step was doing a workshop, and so we workshopped it at the Art Centre. We did about four Four shows, I think, four performances. Mark Gall, do you know Mark? Yes, indeed, yep, yep. 
Marco, I think it just, he was recommended to Sue because I think he was a young up-and-coming director from NIDA at, the state, at that stage. Sean Girton did the set. You know, Sean? Yep. MTC did a lot of design. MTC, there. yeah, very good, great. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> we then went about casting it and we got Daryl Braithwaite played Macbeth. Sherbet. Jenny Val- <laughs> yeah, Sherbet, the yeah. Sherbet Daryl. Jenny Valetic was Lady Macbeth. DJ Foster, Rob Forza. Do you know who Rob Forza is? He, yes, he wasn't he a um, an understudy of Valjean in one of those original Lamezes. I don't know whether he did that, but he was in the original Hair and Superstar. He um, did he understudy that? I remember he he understudied well subsequent to in the final season of Pirates. I'm pretty sure he understudied John English in Pirates. But anyway, Rob is a great singer great kind of pop rock singer as well, um, Italian kind of firebrand, fantastic performer, Rob. I think he did a lot of bit of telly as well. Anyway, so that Rhonda Birchmore was one of my witches. Um, so we had a we had a pretty a pretty damn fine cast. So we got it up to that, that point and people liked it and we are going to take it to the next stage. And then we got, I started to rewrite a bit, reorchestrate, and a guy called Frank Cossaro. I don't know if you heard of Frank Cossaro. No. Frank Cossaro was an opera director. He happened to come out here and he was working on fall stuff for the Australian opera. And he caught wind of this new work because he was a innovative um, opera director in America. And he was actually meant to have been the first director of Superstar before Tom O'Horgan done it, but he got, what happened to him? He had a car accident about three months before. He was in hospital for ages anyway. So he was meant to be the original superstar director, but as I say, he was had a car accident, was in hospital for three to four months and they had to get someone else. So he not only was he a uh, opera director, but theatre director and he also ended up taking over from Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio Kind of pretty pretty influential and interesting guy. So we struck up a great kind of friendship and relationship, and he wanted to do it. So the art centre were paying him to come in, in and out of Australia. So we had many meetings, and we were, he brought a multimedia stage designer called Ron Chase out, who had all these fantastic multimedia ideas, which were kind of revolutionary back then in the eighties. Anyway, it was going to cost a lot of money, and the people that had their money. We're going to invest it into our thing. It was going to was going to be in nineteen the end of nineteen eighty eight eighty nine. Also had their money in Manning Clark's History of Australia. Oh yes, it's for the bicentenary. Yes, and unfortunately that didn't go so well, and the investors got cold feet. So the art centre at that stage couldn't raise any more money, and I I kind of ran out of petrol at that stage because it was slated to be in 89 and then the money fell backwards and it's kind of you know it's been on the back burner ever since although people have tried to get me to do it again I I kind of lost the fire by that stage I was singing and I felt as though it was of another time but it ended up being the reason I ended up having a, a career in in um in the theatre I guess 
It is a great treat to record this conversation with David Hobson. It's easy to see why he has endeared himself to audiences around the world on a variety of platforms and stages. Join us for part two of the conversation where David describes his arrival on the operatic stage and some of the works that he has navigated in a vast and varied career. In this episode, we heard music composed by David Hobson. Opening and closing tracks were created with David Hirschfelder from their Inside This Room album. As a special treat, we also heard demo tracks from David's musical adaptation of Macbeth, created with Graham Hodge. You heard the voices of Rosie Bazzani, John English, Rob Forza, Daryl Braithwaite and David Hobson. Wouldn't it be super to see a staged production of this show? You also heard an excerpt featuring David's father, Mr Philip Hobson. Thank you, David, for the oral delights. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time for Stage's second instalment of our conversation with David Hobson. Real life just begun.